Beloved, open your Bibles with me to um, to Isaiah 44, and we're going to begin reading in verse 9. We'll read through to verse 20, and then we'll pray, and we'll, uh, we'll get into this text together tonight. Isaiah writes, All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He breaks down cedars or cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak. And lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bakes bread. Also he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, these are strong words. And ultimately, Lord God, these are your words that you inspired Isaiah by your Holy Spirit to record for us. To record first for the remnant that's in exile, that was in exile in Babylon, and for us in exile in this earth. And Lord, we need to hear these words with the same attentive heart An earnest desire, Lord, to reject and to guard our hearts against idolatry that we might be guarded from the simplicity and the truth that is in Christ. Lord, I pray that 
you would help our hearts to be attentive and alert. And Father, consider it. Not to just hear these words as a problem for a long lost generation. But Lord, as words that speak volumes to our own. Guard us, Lord, from being drawn away from the simplicity that is in Christ. I pray that, Lord, as we look at these words, that you would have complete control of my faculties, my mind, my thinking, my lips, my words, my heart, everything. I pray that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit and make me to teach these words in accordance with your will. And I pray too, Spirit of the living God, that you would move amongst us, all of us here, And give us hearts to receive these words in the way that we should. Thank you for this time. Blessed, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, here's the thing. The text that we looked at last week, right, was so encouraging. You know, we look at that text from last week and it's like, it's it's beautiful, right? We we saw described there the prevailing grace of God toward his people, right? And 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 we got to just revel in the in the in the depth and in the measure of of the persistence of God's immense mercy to his chosen people. And we got to delight in the way that he always upholds his promises and how, you know, God's electing love indivisibly binds himself to his people, right? The way that that, you know, he gives life by his spirit to us. The way that that by his irresistible power he accomplishes his good purposes in us and how he gives us in that that text, like we saw, sort of the definitive answers that we need for life, right? Who am I? You know, whose am I? Who is God? Who, who is God for me? Like when you have those figured out, you're well on your way to having life figured out, right? And it's encouraging and it's beneficial for our souls, right? And, and one of the emphases there was that, that we're witnesses. We have witnessed. We are, we are witnesses of God's, you know, Greatness is the only true God and of his faithfulness to us, right? We can all recount the ways in which God has been faithful to us. All recount the ways in which God has blessed us in a manner that we could never have anticipated. How he, how he rescued us in a way that we never would have in a, in a, in a million lifetimes imagined, right? And then tonight, man, we come right back to idolatry, right? And Isaiah describes for us here the utter folly of it. And if it seems like Isaiah spends a lot of time talking about idolatry, it's because he does. He does. And there's a reason for that. The great albatross around Israel's neck, if you will, was that they were always drawn to idolatry. It's it's remarkable to even conceive, right? These people rescued from bondage in Egypt, rescued from the, the, you know, demonically inspired hand of Pharaoh, rescued from a lifetime of, of wretchedness and slavery, right? That delivered by the one true God, they are still, you know, tempted by the gods that they were first exposed to in Egypt. And then tempted later on by the gods of the Canaanites whose lands they dispossessed them of to become the promised land, right? And then later on, 
the gods of the various nations to whom they looked for security and for alliances after the tragic fracture between the northern kingdom of Israel and Judah at the end of Solomon's reign, right? Idolatry dogged the steps of the people of God from the very beginning, right? And sadly, idolatry is still a temptation for the people of God today. Now, we want to pretend that we've moved past that. We want to pretend that idolatry is a thing of the past. Lots of times we want to pretend like idolatry is, you know, it's just with those people, the Stone Age people, you know, over in Africa or down in the undiscovered tribes of South America or whatever, right? Those people that set up wood and stone and all that other thing. We want to pretend that that's just them. But it's not. Because here's the truth. Wherever... Whatever captures the human mind and the human heart as an alternative to the Lord Jesus Christ and the exclusive way of faith, whatever we look to for security or for identity other than the Lord himself, whatever we've just got to have in order to be at peace, whatever it is besides Christ, besides you know, God, besides you know, the saving, sustaining presence of the Lord, whatever we've got to have in order to be content, I'm going to tell you what, that's your idol. That's your idol. Os Guinness said, and I think he's absolutely right, he said, idolatry may not involve explicit denials of God's existence or His character. It often does, but it doesn't have to. It may well come in the form of an overattachment to something that is in itself perfectly good. An idol can be a physical object, a property, a person, an activity, a role. An institution. An idol can be a hope, an image, an idea, a pleasure, a hero, anything that we can substitute for God. And, you know, the proof that we're no strangers to the seductive power of idolatry is the very fact that at the end of the first epistle that the Apostle John wrote, He says these words. I want you to listen to him. Listen to what he says. We know. We know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. He is the true God and eternal life. And then he says this, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourself from lesser versions of Christ. Keep yourself from a humanized version of God. Keep yourselves from the idolatry of the age. John writes that eight centuries, eight centuries after Isaiah, to guard, to warn us, to guard our hearts against idolatry. And as soon as you think it's a battle that you've won, you got to the con- I've done, there are no idols in my life at all. 
Give it time. Right? The temptation of idolatry needs to be broken and it needs to be opposed continually in our hearts. And, as, and, and so, directed by the Holy Spirit, Isaiah does his part here to do just that in this text. What really is, what really follows here from verses 9 through 20 is a sustained satire, a mocking, really, of the folly of idolatry. And his specific focus here, obviously, is on graven images because that was the idolatry of the time. But what he says about idolatry here is universally applicable. Okay? And I want us to see that. And I want you to notice how he first begins. He begins first by highlighting the insanity of idolatry, the insanity of man thinking he can create his own gods. Look what he says, verses 9 and 10 again. All who fashion idols are nothing. And the things they delight in do not profit. They're witnesses, the witnesses to the idols. They neither see nor know that they may not, that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a God or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? We know the answer to that. We'll get to it in a moment. I want you to see what Isaiah does here. He, take, he makes some pretty pointed statements in just these first two verses. First, he says that everybody who fashions an idol or everybody who takes to themselves an idol or everybody who seeks to worship an idol makes themselves nothing. They're nothing. Now, the Hebrew word there is an interesting word. It's the word tohu. And it's a word that means chaos or confusion or unreality or emptiness. In other words, what I say is saying here is this. He's like, look, idolatry doesn't, it lacks any sense whatsoever. Okay? Because it lacks any real substance and it's utterly without any positive value for your life. In fact, Paul describes idolatry in this way. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, when he says this, he says, an idol has no real existence. There is no God but one. And then he says, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. But then he goes on to say, just two chapters later, that at the deepest and the most horrific level, that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. So what's Paul saying there? What, what, is he, what is he saying there? He's saying this. He's saying idols bring chaos. And they make your life a chaos and a confusion. They, they, they make your life an unreality. Right? That's what they do. They, 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 they wreck your life because they have no substance. They lack sense at best. Or at worst, they're demonic. They're demonic. More notice, Isaiah emphasizes that, that these idols in which people delight, and, and people love their idols, don't they? Yeah, just put your finger on one and you'll find out real fast, right? He says they don't profit. Like there's no gain, there's no benefit, there's no help at all from idols. Whatever we put in the place of God, right? Whatever we, whatever we put in the place of, of our Lord Jesus, it only leads to loss. It leads to harm. It leads to personal damage because dead idols make their worshipers like themselves. Isn't that the witness of the psalmist in Psalm 115? Listen to these words. Their idols are silver and gold. The work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. 
Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. But the witnesses, right? The idolaters themselves. The ones who, oh, testify to the greatness of this idol. They're all too blind to see the truth. And their minds are too clouded to be shamed as they ought to. It was true in Isaiah's day, right? But it's true, beloved, in our own. I want you to consider the emptiness of our modern idols. The way that we invest hope in them. The way that we, that we serve them. The way that we look for life in them that can only come from God. Think of the humanly devised idols, right? The humanly crafted idols that the world says is worthy of worship but are of no profit at all, really. For instance, the pursuit of money. What can money ultimately gain? Life? Health? Happiness? Peace? There are a lot of rich people that are dying. There are a lot of rich people that are sick. There are a lot of rich people that don't know joy at all. And there are a lot of rich people that would give everything they have for peace. But they can't find it. On the contrary, this, this yoke of the pursuit of money on the soul, you know what it brings? It brings anxiety and fear, doesn't it? It brings demanding, it brings this demand for all of your energy and the occupying of your mind. And it brings with it a world of temptations you wouldn't have had otherwise. It distracts you from the real needs of your soul. And you know what? It can be gone in an instant. Can it? The pursuit of money? Man, it is a God for many. And not just those outside the church. Think about the God of modern psychology and psychiatry. Imagine what you have to believe. You've got to say to yourself, fallen man actually knows the truth about man and his needs better than God does. Think about that now. Does modern psychology really diagnose fallen man better than the Word of God who created man perfect and in his image? What used to be just called plain old run-of-the-mill sin, you know, back in the day, modern psychology and, and, and psychiatry redefines as something else. An addiction, a complex. Here's why. Because that idol then allows us not to have to confront, confront the issue of sin in our lives. But rather makes us feel better about ourselves. Now don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying there's no such thing as organic mental illness. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is, all you've got to do is take a look at our society and the numbers of people that are seeking pharmacological sanctification. It's terrifying. 
Think about the God of reputation and identity. Right? Social media followings, our position at work, our abilities, our skills, the achievements we're after, whatever. We have our identity wrapped up in the wrong things. And as soon as you put your finger on it, you know, like if you if you question somebody's where they where they find their their identity, where they find their 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 their, their who they are, when you start questioning that, buddy, you talk about pushback, you'll find some pushback quick, right? If your reputation or your identity is in your work or your skills or your looks or anything else, here's here's the danger, right? You will forever labor to keep up the reputation. And in so doing, you will do it at the expense of pursuing true godly character. How many times are people satisfied with the reputation and not the reality? Think about physical appearance. There has never been a people. Well, maybe there has. It's hard to imagine a people. Let's put it that way. More focused on appearance. Physically. In our society. Isn't that true? Think about how much, is, how much effort is made towards propping up the idol of physical beauty. All these products to make you look better or look younger or look like your favorite celebrity. Gag. Right? People will spend hours in the gym and they will spend thousands of dollars on products and they will constantly think about what other people think about how they look. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not that working out or, you know, physical hygiene is a bad thing. But for many, the appearance is the ultimate thing, isn't it? Like as long as you look a certain way, people are fine to be vacuous. As far as what they know and their personality and their character, it's fine. Think about the God of entertainment. We're obsessed with it, right? Netflix, Hulu, this streaming service, that streaming service, 10,000 vacations, 8,000 podcasts. Like, I can't, I can't be alone with my thoughts. I need Jordan Peterson telling me what to think. TikTok, right? For you old folks, Facebook, or what I like to call fake book. When our lives become all about the search for entertainment and for the best experiences we can find, that's an idol. The idol of sex. Mankind has taken a good gift from God and made it into the God of our lives. Isn't it true? Look around, man. Look at the way everything's advertised. It's advertised with sex, isn't it? Or innuendo. And for many, their lives are controlled by it. To, to even question the sexual ethic in our society instantly brings outrage and defensiveness and cries of being a Puritan. Or a prude. Not just like it if you wore some clothes. That'd be great. God of comfort. How does that work with the promise that Jesus makes that his followers will face trials and persecution and difficulty? Look, I'm not saying you shouldn't get a my pillow. If you like my pillows, get one. The point, though, is this: while comfort's not terrible, it does become damaging when it becomes the main pursuit in life. When comfort's an idol, you will struggle when God calls you to do something difficult. 
the God of technology. Smartphone addiction is a serious problem in this country. It's a worrying trend. Look, some people cannot live without their phone. Like even when you go on vacation, you take it with you everywhere. I was delighted to throw my phone on a counter and leave it there. That was nice. Made it hard to find way, you know, how to get places because I didn't have my maps. But, but, you know, for a lot of people, they just can't live without their phones or their online presence. Fewer and fewer people are actually learning anything. You know why? All you got to do is Google it. Smartphones are actually making us dumber. Few, if any, read anymore. It's like we can't sit in silence for five minutes without refreshing our news feed or looking at Instagram. If that's you, you might have a problem. Think about the gods of drugs and drunkenness. Think about how they provide a false peace or a false sense of control or a false joy. False satisfaction. But then when the drugs or the alcohol runs out, the obsession is to find more, to get the next fix, to get hammered again. And all it leads to is the death of the soul. All it leads to is the destruction of lives and the ruin of the one who worships drugs and drink. Think about the number of lives that are wrecked and ruined by it in our nation alone. And the list goes on and on, right? I could talk about the idol of food. Both being a foodie like, I'm just, I just can't anything, eat anything unless it's, you know, fill in your whatever it's got to be. Organic, field-raised, range giant, all that stuff. You know, like, I can't eat that chicken unless he's had a good life. Right? Or just overeating. Right? The idol of stuff, the idol of influence, the idol of approval, the idol of, idol of power, the idol of earth worship. And imaginary rights and stuff. You can list some I haven't even thought of, right? They're all over. But put any of those things in the place of God and you get tohu. You get chaos. You get confusion. You get unreality. And you get emptiness and ultimately spiritual death. So when Isaiah asks here at the end of verse 10, Who fashions a God or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? The tragic answer to that question is what? We do. We do. Fallen man does, but we should know better. And that's the whole point of verse 11. Look what Isaiah says. Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. How can they make a God? Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. Look, here's why he says that. Deep in his heart, deep in our hearts, we know that these idols are ultimately worthless, right? We know they are. That they can't be a real God. That they can't, you know, save. They can't satisfy. And they can't do so because they are ultimately the product of human hands and human minds. And what's going to happen is this. Is that those who trust in the works of their hands and of their minds are going to one day give an account for their rejection of the one true God. And they're going to be put to shame before Him. Idolaters are willingly blind to the truth. Willingly blind. 
And then Isaiah describes the process of idolatry. Like, how did mankind ever come to this? Right? And, and he highlights the irony of it all. Like, let me show you this. this is, how do we get to the point of creating gods in the place of the one true God? Well, look what he says. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and he works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. Just see what Isaiah does here. It's pretty cool. He takes us step by step backwards. He takes us backwards step by step from the end of the process to the beginning. That's what he does. This is really cool. right? He shows us in each stage how irrational and ludicrous it is for humans to make their own gods. He starts first with the final step of plating that wooden form with metal. right? And then he goes all the way back to the first step of planting seedlings from which the wood will be cut. right? What's his purpose in doing that? It's to highlight for us what a complex, exhausting, and wearisome task the business of making your own God is. It's exhausting, right? In fact, let me just point out a few of the ironies in this text. First, I want you to notice the intense human effort that has to be applied to make these idols, right? All the work you have to go through to try to prop these things up as somehow being helpful, right? At the final stage, the ironsmith becomes hungry and tired. He becomes thirsty and exhausted. Here's the irony of it. How can any God whose making is so dependent on the exhaustion of its maker be a real God? Second, think about the irony of the carpenter's work. Oh, this is right to the heart of what we're about. But fallen man's bad. He says, tasked with, you know, with making a God, right? In contrast now, in contrast now to man's creation in the image of God, he crafts the idol in the image of a man to be placed in the house or in a temple to be worshipped. Well, exactly. That's what fallen mankind always does. Recasts God, what? In his own image. And why? It's because the highest being that a fallen man can conceive is one of his own person. The irony is that the fallen man creates a God in his own image and, it, and it's just it's compulsive, exhausting work. Because it's ultimately futile. Third, the source of his God is earthbound. It's earthbound. It comes from a tree planted in the earth. 
It's not divine in origin. It's a tree planted in the earth and nourished by the rain, which ironically the true God must cause to fall upon it or it will never grow. And then last, when the tree for the idol is cut down, <laughs> I get this now, man. How do you pick which end? Half, half of it he burns for fire to warm himself and to feed himself, right? And the other half says, I'm going to make this a god. How'd you pick which end? Like, what do you do? Do you, you know, flip a coin? Do you like, you know, how do you figure it out? How can a log, part of which was burned in the service of human needs, right? Warmth, food. How can it then be turned into a God that demands human service and offers deliverance to its worshipers? How does that work? What we need to see here, beloved, is that idolatry is nothing less than a replacement for God by twisting and perverting His good gifts and His purposes into something that is ultimately empty of value. We create idols. Mankind creates idols to try to satisfy the deepest longings that are in us. It's why we turn to those things. Why we turn to money. Why we turn to appearance. Why we turn to, you know, drugs or drink or whatever else. It's because we're trying to satisfy something deep down inside of us that those idols cannot satisfy. They can't do it. Human idols are designed to give a perverted you know, version and an empty shadow of the good gifts of God that can only be found in a right relationship to the giver. That's the whole thing. A twisted version of identity. A twisted version of security, of acceptance, of love, of joy, of knowledge and wisdom and deliverance, peace and rest and salvation. Like, it, it, it's, a, it's, an, it's a facade of those things. And you read books sometimes. Like I read a book not long ago about a guy that was, that was trapped in, in, in the gang lifestyle, right? It wasn't, though, that originally he was drawn to the violence of it, and he was drawn to the, the drugs of it, and he was drawn to the money and everything. Originally, he was drawn to belonging to somebody, belonging with somebody, to having some sort of significance beyond just drawing breath and dying. That's the power, if you will, of idols. They offer a false sense of life. Idols never satisfy. You know what they do? They increasingly demand more and more. And they consistently add to the burdens of our lives. And in the end, they don't give anything of lasting value. They steal everything of lasting value. That's the reality of idolatry. In fact, look what Isaiah says about the the tragic end of idolatry. He says, starting in verse 18, They know not, nor do they discern. For he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers. Nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. 
A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? The question is, who, who shuts the idolaters' eyes so they can't see in, in their hearts so that they can't understand or discern the foolishness of idolatry? The Hebrew, honestly, is unclear. It's, an uncle- it's unclear. It could mean that, that these idolaters have become foolish and blinded by their devotion to their idols, that the only power that idols have is to make men blind and unperceptive. Or it could mean that God in His justice is simply giving to them what they have chosen because... In the words of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, they have refused to love the truth and so be saved. And so therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may, not, so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. It could be either one. It could be that Isaiah phrased it the way that he did so that ambiguity would answer both sides of the, equa- the equation. But in either case, the end is the idolater feeds on ashes. Ashes don't nourish anybody, do they? That's where all idolatry ends. The idolater believes that he can find the meaning of life and all the shapes and in the stuff of this world and it just leads him to death because his heart deceives him. And he fails to recognize that the idol that he worships is only a lie. There's no good form of idolatry. It holds him hostage. And he can't deliver himself. You see, what, when Isaiah's getting in here, he's like, idolatry makes no sense. It, it brings no profit. It, it makes people like the idols they worship, which is dead, right? It makes them ignorant and blind. It's logically foolish. But on an even deeper level, idolatry holds men and women in a grip that they cannot break. He cannot see that the idol that he holds in his right hand really holds him. What's the escape? Who can deliver a man from his idolatry? Only one can. The Lord himself, right? The Lord himself. He alone can deliver the idolater from the gods of his own making. Only God can pierce the darkness that envelops the human heart. Only him. And that's the very power of the gospel. Isn't that what Paul said to the Thessalonians when he was talking about how they were saved? He says to them, remember these words, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And then he says, We know how you turned from, to God from idols. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Beloved, idolatry has always been a temptation for the people of God and we've got to be on guard against its creeping into our own lives. And when we find it, when we find idols creeping in, we need to smash them, crush them, grind them to powder, put them to death. Dan Wickard says, idols are powerful. But two realities cause our hearts to become dissatisfied with idols. The first is that we are created in the image of God and created for God. 
Nothing else will give us eternal purpose or everlasting joy. When we choose to set up a dead, powerless idol and worship at its feet, then we are attended to by a dead, powerless idol that pleases temporarily and superficially. Money disappears. Fame fades away. Children grow up and leave. Our friends fail us. Control is elusive. God alone, in all of His beauty and grace, can promise us joy forever. The second reality that causes our hearts to grow dissatisfied with idols is the grace of God. God is too good to allow His children to worship something or someone that will not eternally satisfy. He is so good that He either wrenches our idols from our hands or makes us miserable as long as we clench and grasp at them. Little children... Keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray together. Father, these are needful words. They're needful words, Lord God, for all of us. Every one of us. The stratagems and the schemes of Satan are actively at work in this world. Lord, and they, he desires to, to take your people down. And so I pray, Lord God, that we would heed the instruction and the warning and the clarity of your word. Lord God, help us, as we sang, to cast down every one of our idols and give us clean hands and give us pure hearts And Lord, let us not lift our souls in worship to anyone but you. To anything but you. Father, I pray that you would make us bold to confront and to destroy the idols in our own lives. And I pray, Lord God, that you would make us merciful and kind and compassionate to those who are trapped in idolatry of various shades and kinds. And that, Lord, we might speak to them the truth of the gospel in love and with an earnest desire to see them freed from the gods of human making and into the freedom of being children of the living God. Father, I pray that we'd hold fast to the gospel Hold fast to the sufficiency of your word. Hold fast to your sufficiency in all ways. That you'd make us strong and faithful. Delighting in you. And serving you with all of our strength. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.